You sure you want to hear this? What's the guy's name? Uh, a Ar- Rondier. <laughs> I'm never gonna get it. It's too hard of a word for me. Nobody goes off trail, and nobody walks alone. I think it's the most powerful moment in 20th century literature. <laughs> she was so happy to ride a horse. Yeah. Has it been a thousand years since she's ridden a horse or something? There's a big difference between a book and a movie. Release the wog. When you come to interpretations like the Jackson films or this Amazon series, that's not talking. Bees, we all loved him. He was sure was an idiot. <laughs> Nobody else in the Lord of the Rings ever, as I can recall, takes a bath. Can we keep him? <laughs> that was a weird noise that I just made. Thank you for joining us for the second episode of Across the Sundering Seas. We hope to be a podcast for all Tolkien fans, both gatekeepers and casual fans. On this episode, we'll talk about The Rings of Power, episode three, where we get to visit Numenor, meet new characters that are vital to the history of Middle-earth, learn more about who Halbrand and the Stranger are. And the thing we're most excited about, we will interview one of the world's leading Tolkien scholars, Dr. Verlin Flieger. So join us as we adventure across the Sundering Seas. Our first episode we released on YouTube and uh, all the other podcasting sites. We're working on getting on Apple Podcasts still. Um, but we have 244 views uh, right now on that first episode. And I was blown out of the water by how many people watched. I'm shocked. I picked my kids up from school and they asked me, how many views did the podcast have? And I was like, 28. And I was proud of that. Yeah, I was, yeah. I was happy. That That's great. 28 people listened to a 53-minute podcast that, <laughs> that we put out. And my, my daughter was like, 28's not very good. And I was like, well, you know, perspective. But 244, and we have comments. Um, and I knew it. The, 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 the argument, there was the one comment from your student. And I just knew that there was going to be an argument over women dwarves and beards do they do they have beards do they not i knew there was going to be an argument and of course there was uh dr gabriel um had a spirited conversation with a viewer um who uh you know did express their uh distaste for um something we said about <laughs> women dwarves and beards i welcome more people to comment um share um, reposted. I mean, one of my wife's patients' families sent her a message asking a question, and they're like, "Can you ask your husband what he thinks about this?" Uh, and so you just never know who's a fan um, out there. But I, I encourage people to dive into it, um, even if you're a little skeptical um, of the series. Dive into it because it'll lead you into this fascinating world that Tolkien created. Where you'll never—it's—it's it's so vast that you'll never. You'll never know uh, all the ins and outs. One of the reasons we're doing this podcast is so that we can learn more ourselves. I have books upon books upon books upon books of Tolkien work, and I collect and collect and collect, and I don't always read them all because like this one is an encyclopedia, right? Um, this one is an atlas. Um, I don't just sit down and read them, but... Uh, with the show taking place in a time where we don't really understand, I'm finding myself pouring over these books um, and learning more about the worlds of Tolkien. And that's part of the reason that I am uh, enjoying this podcast. And I, I don't have the depth. Like I only own, I own the Lord of the Rings. I own the Hobbit. Uh, I have the Silmarillion on audiobook. Um, and so just just within one week 
of doing this podcast, I would I've probably doubled my Tolkien knowledge and and learning from scholars, learning from your insights, just getting to just getting to be in Middle Earth even more than I would have normally been has been awesome. Obviously, I have a lot of Tolkien books. I mean, I named one of my children after Samwise Gamgee's daughter. Um, Tolkien is a big part of my life, but I I don't always get to talk about it with people because it's not relevant all the time. And it's relevant again. And I have my mom and my sister and uh, my wife and my children and my friends. They're all watching it. And they're all asking questions, trying to figure things out. And I don't always know the answer and neither do all of these books because of, you know, the nature of this TV show. But uh, my brother-in-law, for example, he's reading the Cimmerillion for the first time and he's excited about it. He sent me notes today from the Cimmerillion first couple of uh, pages. And uh, it's interesting and it has me going back in and reading and learning things as well. And so I am loving being able to be a dork out in the open again. Uh, with people as they try to figure out uh, this TV show, The Rings of Power. It's amazing to have a new entry point for for people that ha- didn't enter into the world when the Lord of the Rings movies were first coming out, um, and to to get to like drag some people in that maybe maybe wouldn't like like friends, girlfriend. Some of my students have have been introduced to our podcast, and and have asked me about it and. And so to, 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 for them to have an entry point in the Middle Earth, um, I'm really enjoying getting, getting a new place. One of your students made a comment on our YouTube post. Came here for Mr. Huddy, stayed for the insects. <laughs> yeah, Ger- uh, Gerald has, uh, he's even been advertising in, in my classes. He, uh, he, he wrote our link up on the board and, and he's, he's telling everybody, hey, watch, watch Mr. Huddy's podcast. And then there are those who aren't going to like the show. Our guest today, Dr. Verlin Flieger, while she is brilliant in all things Tolkien, she does not like the show um, and doesn't intend to watch it from what she has told me. But there's still a lot to learn from her. She has a great perspective and gets to bring a ton of knowledge to us. Talking with Gabriel and Sara, our guests from last week, uh, they were impressed that she was going to be talking with us. And so the reality of who she is kind of set in with me. And in fact, I asked Gabriel to join us again uh, on this episode. And this is what he told me. He said, Verlin is such an important scholar. I think she should get solo billing. And she's generally a very positive person. So even if she is negative to the series, I'm sure she will phrase her opposition in a beautiful way and say other beautiful things about Tolkien. My name is Verlin Flieger. I'm, I guess, on this because I'm a Tolkien scholar. Uh, I taught Tolkien for many, many years, both at Catholic University in downtown DC and then at the University of Maryland. I've published on Tolkien several books and I'm one of the co-editors of a yearly journal called Tolkien Studies that accepts interesting articles that people want to send in and have published. So in a nutshell, that's who I am. What got you connected to Tolkien? What what put you in this world? I read The Lord of the Rings in 1957, 56 or 57, that winter. Um, And I did something that you can't do anymore, which is I read a book that nobody had ever heard of and about which I had no expectations. And it was an absolute revelation. I read it from one volume right through to the end of the last volume, and then I turned right around and started at the beginning again, because I didn't want to let go of it. Um, I just loved it. I'd never read anything quite like it. I'd read a lot of things that were sort of like it, like King Arthur and the Norse 
sagas and, and epics and Beowulf um, and the Eddas. And they, they had elements that I could see in the Lord of the Rings, but the way that Tolkien brought all of that together and created this um, utterly believable world that you could just go into and inhabit was something I'd never really encountered before. And when it was over, I was so let down um, that I tried to think of ways that I could keep on being in it. And one of them was to teach it. I just, I wanted to hang out with those guys. And so I asked my university if they would be interested in a course on fantasy, which was my clever way of sneaking Tolkien in. And this was the 70s and they said they'd love it. So I introduced fantasy and snuck Tolkien right into the middle of it and it took off and students registered and they had to add extra sections and I've been teaching it in one way or another ever since. Did I read right that you, you've edited some Tolkien work itself? Well, I worked on The Fall of Arthur for a while, but then I edited the story of Kullervo, which is Tolkien's take on Finnish mythology. And I edited um, The Lay of Outru and Etrun, which was his version of Breton, Breton, B-R-E-T-O-N, mythology. Uh, so I've, I've had a good deal of experience working with Tolkien's manuscripts. And then I co-edited with my colleague, Doug Anderson, um, Tolkien's essay on fairy stories. Forgive my ignorance, but did you actually work with Tolkien on anything? Did you have you met him? No, I never met him. I met okay. Christopher. What was your experience meeting Christopher? Oh, it was exciting. I met him first at a conference, and then I was invited to spend time with him at his house in France, and I visited him on several occasions, uh, and we've been, I would say, pretty good friends. New Line, Peter Jackson, they make these movies 20 years ago. Can you tell me about what you thought then and your thoughts on the movies now? You sure you want to hear this? Absolutely. Absolutely. I thought they were boring, shallow, big, noisy action movies. I thought they lost all of the, all of the philosophy all of the psychology, all of the, the very complex attitude that Tolkien has about good and evil and just sort of flattened it out. I still think that. I was bored. So for me, I, I wasn't a big reader. I, I was also like 14 years old when the first movie came out. For me, it, it, it made me dive into the world and from from a very, like you said, from a very shallow place. Um, and it wasn't until I, I got older, I grew up, and even still now, um, that I'm falling in love with everything else that was invented and written around it. I'm using the new show uh, for myself to be able to live in a world where I wish I could live 24-7, even if it's not perfect. Um, but... I'm now finding myself, because I'm doing this podcast, I'm finding myself actually studying um, for the sake of studying. And if you knew me, I'm not an intellectual. But I've collected these books now, right? I Sitting right here, I have an atlas. Uh, I've got David Day's Encyclopedia. I've got the Cimmerillion sitting right here. And I'm digging through them, studying um you know, to see if I can find out more and find out where we're going and learning about the second age while we think they're going to reinvent everything. Um, and it's not going to be what I guess you could call canon, the TV show. It's, it's about um, kind of letting my dorkdom or my nerdism like fly because it's relevant again. 
And I have people in my life, people are tired of hearing me talk about Tolkien in my life because I talk about them all the time and it's not relevant all the time to them. And so. That's why I got into teaching because I had to get paid for talking about Tolkien. You might consider that. The new TV show um, has come out and it's largely fan fiction. Um, what, what are your, what are your thoughts on the medium of a TV show and everything that's going on with that? How much time do I have? <laughs> as, as much as you want. I think the medium, um, makes its own demands. There's a big difference between a book and a movie, which is what the Amazon series essentially is. Uh, and they have different a different framework, they have different needs, different demands, different rules. Um, for example, a movie, you're gonna laugh, has to move. Um, whereas a book uh, with the words on the page has unlimited time to build up the effects that the author wants and can work in partnership with the reader. I mean, reading books is a two-way street uh, and it's, it depends on that tremendous um, symbiosis between the author and the reader and the interface, which is the words so that it's, it's a dynamic process. When you're watching a movie, you're watching the movie. Um, it's kind of interesting. <laughs> Move is the operative word. I mean, I-E is, is a prefix, actually like selfie or foodie. It's a move. E. Uh, and so the essence of it is action, things on the move, whereas a book can take all the time in the world to be contemplative about what it wants to say. Uh, the other thing is that an image is a very powerful thing. <laughs> Uh, it's there in front of you. It's hard for you to escape. Um, it's a statement. Words are ambiguous. Words can mean different things to different people. Dictionaries can have whole lists of definitions for the same word, and they can overlap so that the word on the page has, has a greater power, I think, um, than does the image on the screen. When you come to interpretations like the Jackson films or this Amazon series, that's not talking. Um, and it, it gives you a little more freedom to, um, to assert your own autonomy. And as I think you just said, this is really fan fiction. Agreed. Yep. I definitely agree. Even I'm can get upset about things here or there. Like I started making a timeline of Sauron's movements in the second age, trying to figure out where we are in the second age. And it, it seems like we're, we're messing with the timeline. Mm -hmm. um, but I suspect we're going to have to, to, to get there. Like the point uh, Dr. Gabriel brought up about when you translate things to, to new mediums, things, things have to be shifted, things have to be condensed or, or just changed in order for things to, to make sense in a new medium. And so this, this may be one of those things. The episode opens with the Rondier being pulled into a camp. And we quickly find out that these are actually orcs. The fact that like they can't get in the sun and you can like literally hear their skin baking in it. And the Urukai, that's like an intentional 
thing like that's like why saruman bred them bred them yeah was so that they weren't kind of susceptible to that so rondir arrives in this camp and he's met with his buddy uh from his post and we realize that the elves have been captured as well arondir's he got he got some hate i think the first two episodes but that his storyline is one of the most intriguing ones to me yeah i'm starting to like it as well yeah even honestly even from the beginning like i don't his character just has a lot of intrigue to me hip the the kind of like stoic uh you don't really see a lot emotionally from him those characters always like peak peak my uh peak my ears a little bit we pan down this tree and they want the elves to cut this tree down they are willing to pick a fight over a tree it shows a lot of depth for the elves and their their love for nature and you think about lothlorien later and their just love for trees in general tolkien's love for trees somebody was complaining that a lot of this doesn't seem like tolkien right someone's critiquing the series it doesn't quite seem like tolkien and then somebody pointed out that they spent an entire scene talking about a tree one tree <laughs> which is very tolkien like very so they, de- they, yeah. they come up with a plan as well that somebody needs to get out of the trench and look above. So the elf captain picks the fight over the tree and then like a, a one of the uh, orc leaders comes out and he says, oh, you stood up to us. You, you, you earned your crew a water break. And they all think it's poison. They don't want to drink it, but they go ahead and drink it. And I watched it when I watched it the first time, I was shocked. Two of them take sips of the water, and then the third one just gets himself a big swig, and they slice his throat, and he dies. And I I felt horrible for mm-hmm. him. Yeah, he's not even a character that you that they've built up. You don't know much about him, but one, the way the actor plays the scene, and, and two just the suspense around it made it made it a pretty heartbreaking death you know more things that kind of reminded me of tolkien was you know there's all these parallels between world war 1 and tolkien and how he wrote that and they're in a trench right now digging it i bet water was hard to come by so that while they don't trust the orc they need the water as well the sound editing here was amazing too with him yelling finishing the sip of water you see the tiny slit and then he collapses this is a guy he served with for what do you say 79 79 years yeah this this is hard for a ron deer yep even even a stoic guy like himself that's hard for him to see so then a ron deer says he'll cut the tree and i think part of the reason he does this i mean you see him pause when he gets to the top of the hill it's he knew somebody has to see out what mm-hmm. it looks like. Uh, so he climbs the tree and um, when he gets to the top, he looks around and they have decimated this land. Yeah. Which makes sense. I mean, Mordor is a desert, a barren wasteland. This looks a lot better. You can still see forest <laughs> yeah, in, the, yeah. in the distance. There's still something. There. And then he touches the tree he speaks to it in Elvish. He was trying to be as reverent as he could be to mm. this tree. This fight scene is awesome. It came out of nowhere, yeah, right? I mean, like, he just runs and they use the chains. And to it's immediately fight. as the scene starts. Yeah. The choreography is so cool. And you it, can you can hear they did it right. They did it on purpose in the hottest part of the day yep. so that they can make the orcs run back. One of them breaks their chains. Yep. Makes a run for it. Hopeful. And takes an axe in the back yeah. and dies. And I, you realize it's not going to be as easy as they thought it was going to be. I love the part where they, when they release the warg. Oh, yeah. Is that how you say that? Warg, warg maybe. They release the warg. My kids screamed through this part. Yeah, I could see this being. I actually fast forwarded through the part where the throat got slit for my children. But I let them watch this part. And they were screaming but did not want me to turn it off. Wow. You know, because they, they realize it's fake. Watching him jump over the warg and, you know, bypass it. And you can tell they're both moving really fast because of how the, the warg f- 
flies into the roots of the tree. Mm-hmm. And then he grabs the stick and stabs the guy in the neck with the stick. Uh, that's a, another thing that just makes me love Arondir's storyline is how hardcore he is. Yeah. Because he's so gentle at the beginning. Yeah. His buddy runs up and the warg is going to get him. And Arondir kills him. He says goodbye to his friend because he's going to make it to freedom. He peers out and his friend's just standing there with an arrow. This reminded me of Boromir a little bit. Yeah, and he gets the second one. Yeah. yeah. And you could see, I, I was confused at first because I didn't notice that there were orcs, there were orcs on the, the other field. side of yeah, him. Yeah, I saw them. Like, the second time watching it, I saw so at the very end of the second episode, uh, Halbrand and Galadriel are laying. They survived the storm, survived drowning, and they're a, a shadowy figure, right, arose. And and uh, we quickly get to find out who these people are. I think a lot of people speculated that it was people from Numenor. Yeah. Um, and indeed it is. Trailers give you give you some stuff. So coming in to Numenor, I immediately knew it was Numenor because I, I saw the beacon light up and it instantly reminded me of the beacons in the Lord of the Rings that uh, Aragorn wanted to be lit. And then all of the statue figures uh, as well. I definitely got goosebumps like imagining myself being in Numenor for the first <laughs> time when they got to Numenor and they're walking through the streets and Galadriel's giving Halbrand um, the history. We see blacksmiths in the background. And as Halbrand walks past it, he pauses and watches them. Yeah. And instantly I went, they, are they trying to make us think he's Sauron? There's so many plot points that I'm, I just am not sure at this point. The other thing that was interesting to me is when we're talking about him potentially being a bad guy, um, when they're talking to the elf queen and Galadriel picks a fight, he kind of like steps up and puts the charm on. And he does that several times through this episode. So he does it again when he's uh, having drinks. You can like the music even like intensifies and it's like he's gone somewhere else and then he snaps back into reality and charms them and buys them all drinks and becomes their friend. And then after he steals the, the, the brooch uh, from the guy and they corner him in the alley, he tells them, don't do this. And originally you're thinking, he's saying, don't do this because I him himself doesn't want to get hurt. But what he's saying is don't do this to yourself because then he just snaps and then snaps one of their arms, which was really <laughs> yeah. hard to watch, by the way. It was, yeah, that's stuff like that. I'm not good with stuff like that, but it was intense. Yeah, and then I thought the shooting style was cool too. Like they, at one point, they threw blood onto the screen. Yeah, and I it's like that. yeah, it's it like, was like video game esque. Yeah, it was cool. You know? If Halbrand ends up being any any sort of enemy, eventually, I I love and hate the what's happening to him right now just with the potential foresight of him being a bad guy eventually because he's trying he's trying to not end up being that way like he's trying he talks about he wants to have a new start a fresh start doing blacksmithing and um and just making making a life for himself here and then if he if he ends up you know turning dr sarah brown told us that we're going to get to see all the rings of power made and like i think we're going to like fall in love with some of these characters that end up being bad guys like all of the nazgul i'd love to like be like oh he's one of my favorite characters oh he becomes a nazgul mm. that it makes it makes and it makes villains so much better when when you are empathetic for them still it makes villains mean so much more some of the theories i've heard is that he could be the witch king yeah I've seen another one where he could be the king of the undead. Oh. From the Lord of the Rings. I hadn't seen that one. Um, okay. You know, but it that one, you know, he'd have to swear an oath and then break it just like his forefathers did. I would hope he wouldn't repeat the same mistake. Now, if you've got a franchise, 
and that's what this is, then you've got to have hooks to keep people buying into it. So I would think there will be teasers all along the line. Saying, you- tune in next week and you will find out who the mystery man is, what a movie has to do, which is to move, and what a book can do, which is to stay still. My big example of the power of nothing, the power of emptiness, is um, a moment in The Lord of the Rings where somebody doesn't do something. The moment at the cracks of doom where after having built up for three volumes to the climactic moment, a major character doesn't do something. Frodo says, I won't do it. And that creates a sort of stunned silence, um, which I think is much, much more effective than all the leaping and jumping and um, special effects. It is in its own way, I guess, if you like, a very special effect. It's the effect of silence, of everything just coming to a dead stop. I think it's, well, I know it's the most powerful moment in the book. I think it's the most powerful moment in 20th century literature because it stops you cold. We cut to the sea, and there are uh, people on a ship uh, working, and one of them says, seal door. And I got, again, goosebumps instantly. Um, I did not think we were going to meet seal door. Who was whispering to seal door when he, he's kind of first introduced? Yeah. When he, was it when, are you talking about when he was looking at the mountains? Yeah, he was looking at the mountains. Yeah, I, I don't know. I thought that was weird. I kind of took it as, because he kind of like looks off and it's beautiful, right? It's Numenor, it's home. It's where he loves, you can tell he loves the sea. He loves his home. I just took it as like, that he has a deep calling. Not really like foreshadowing, just kind of like a. His, yeah, I didn't his take it as for I took it as his heart, but I did hear it, and it it is weird when, you know, when I hear voices, it's a bad thing. Yeah, and it people usually whisper to me yeah. that aren't around me. Yeah, that's uh, not good. But yeah, I just try not to listen to him. <laughs> <laughs> the name Isildur was lost on my sister, my wife. They did not know who Isildur was. My children either. And so I had to explain to them that a seal door is the one who cuts the ring off Sauron's hand. So that that moment means nothing. Didn't really mean anything to them. But you're you're like goosebumps. Yeah, I like pause the show. <laughs> I needed to process it for a second. I, I wanted to go watch the prologue of the Fellowship <laughs> yeah. of the Rings. Um, and you know what what happens is in the movie uh, Sauron comes out. He's got the ring on and he's slaying people left and right. And then Elendil steps up and Sauron slams him against a rock and kills him. That is our captain here. That is the same character. And Isildur grabs the the sword, his father's sword, and he cuts the ring off of Sauron's hand. And then Isildur has a chance to destroy the ring. And I literally wrote down that Isildur failed us hard because he kept the ring for himself. And then he was... The ring betrayed him. He was killed. And the ring sat for 2,500 years until it was found by Gollum and his friend. It's all, all these moments of building characters that you love. And then, just like we do, just like we do, we let we let other people down. They're going to, we know, the, the sad thing is we know that they're, how they let us down eventually. Right. But we're still, like, I mean, already seeing Isildur like like you said you just get goosebumps like yeah. he's a he's a heroic character that we know that lets us down but and it, and what's neat too is he's a little bit underachieving mm. right he's underachieving he doesn't he tells his dad in a little bit he doesn't want to go and pass the tests mm-hmm. right he wants to take some time off mm-hmm. and we know that 
he eventually, he and his brother, who we haven't met yet, but we will, and his father, they go to Middle Earth and they establish Gondor, Isildur, and his brother. And then you put that against Halbrand, which is not a character we know. It's not a name from the, the books as far as I know. And we don't know who it, his role is going to be. And we don't know who he is. Um, and I, I kind of like that. So then I loved it. Uh, they, the map, it shows us traveling from Numenor across the Sundering Seas. Across the Sundering Seas. And then it goes seas. right over the words, the Sundering Seas, uh, to Middle Earth. And I had a friend of mine ask me um, if I knew where Numenor was on the map compared to Valinor, Middle-earth, um, where does, where is it located? And so I wanted, I have um, uh, a book here called the Atlas of Middle-earth and in it um, they go through the first age, second and third age. And there is a map of the world here. And it's a, it is a circular world, a, a ball world. It doesn't look like it's a flat earth here. Uh, sorry, flat earthers it does not appear that way. Um, but it shows that Numenor is actually quite close to Valinor, um, about um, somewhere around 800 miles, maybe a little less, from Valinor to Numenor. And Numenor is pretty big. It is south of Middle Earth and uh, is like, it's, you know, 1,200 miles or so to Middle Earth, maybe a little less, yeah. maybe a little further at certain points as well. I will say that. Uh, this map also reminds me of Europe and Asia and then Africa. Like I can kind of see it. Yeah. Right. It kind of lays out that way. So yeah, that's where Numenor is. It also makes me like, I'd love to know how far Galadriel swam. Yeah. You ever, if you, if you've ever swam a hundred meters, 800, mi 800 miles? Right. I mean, she didn't swim all the way to New yeah. York, but it had to be... I mean, they, they probably stay within their kingdom realm, right? They're not just going all the way to Valinor. They didn't yeah. pick her up just a couple yards after that. Um, it also makes me wonder, how did Halbrand and them get past Ooh. Numenor? So did she swim around Numenor somehow? None of that makes sense to me. I'd love to know. It might just be an, an oversight. Yeah, that yeah, that could just be. But we're talking. But that's interesting. Like hundreds of miles. Because if they're coming from the Southlands, right? Numenor is twice as far away from Valinor, yep. if not more, from from Middle Earth. Yeah, are they going around trying to get to Valinor? I don't know what they were doing. <laughs> or was Halibrand secretly looking for Numenor the whole time? Could be questions that are answered. Could could know. just be questions. So we find out that Elendil uh, speaks Elvish, mm. and Galadriel realizes that not everybody hates the elves. Yeah. He tells her that there's the Hall of Lore, and it's a day's ride. And she says, ride? And then that scene with them riding the horses. A little cringy. It was weird. It was a little cringy. I... I don't, she was so happy to ride a horse. Yeah. Has it been a thousand years since she's ridden a horse or something? There's a couple great slow-mo scenes in this episode. This is not one. This one, this one doesn't make the cut to, to be great. Like when Elendil is walking in the hall, it's slow-mo, that's cool. When Isildur is introduced, slow-mo, that's cool. Galadriel on the horse, slow-mo. Nah. Not as cool. It was like they just gotten a new camera and wanted to try the slow-mo out. <laughs> yeah. They get to the Hall of Lore, and she gives him the drawing of the stamp that was on her brother, and they find out that they're, it's the Southlands. Oh, yeah. It's Mordor. Matches the map. Yeah. Yep. So she knows that they're compiling you know, all of the evil to that area now. So Halbrand ends up in jail for beating up all of those people. Uh, pretty impressive. Yes. Pretty if, impressive. if it was me, I would be in the hospital. Yeah. <laughs> He's in jail. No mark on him. That first punch, I'd be down. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and Gal Galadriel reveals to him that she knows he's the true king of the Southlands and that his... His crest. He, yes. Yeah. She knows what his crest means. And then 
he admits to it and says that basically it's a line like Aragorn said, the same blood that runs through my, their veins runs through mine, saying he might fail because they have failed. He kind of says the same line. Um, so he's running away from that as well. So I see an Aragorn character inside of him as well. I could see evil in him too. He gives both. He gives both. That's where he's different from Aragorn. It's halfway through the episode before we get to the Harfoots. I didn't realize the Harfoots at first because they're wearing this garb. Yeah. Uh, it's their festival, right? That they've been talking about. Um, so it, it comes in sinister and then quickly uh, light, lightens up. Yeah, almost a, a mask that reminds you of what the orcs are wearing at yeah. the beginning. Yes. And they're chanting, Nobody goes off trail. And nobody walks alone. Nobody goes off trail, and nobody walks alone. That's the only. That's all they got. Like, yeah, they should have had more. That's the one motto. And nobody gets left behind. Maybe we should say that. Ooh, uh. I do think that it's interesting. The whole idea that if you're hurt, you get left behind. Not we'll put you on a cart and we'll pull you because they all have carts, and so it's not we'll put you on a cart, we'll pull you. It's you get left behind. And we'll f- we also like see this point where they remember those who have been left behind, and they say we'll wait for you, no. but they won't. It's no. just how they make themselves feel better. Yeah, it's a very um, me mentality. Yeah, for a community that is based around community, or it, what seems like is it based around community? There's there's a gap. There's definitely a gap there. I also, in that scene where they name Poppy's entire family, I cried. Uh, if, Twice. If that, yeah. if that doesn't move you, like, you, you, you're made of stone. She, Poppy is uh, very strong. Yeah, and she's trying to be. We, they haven't put any of her pain, like, into her character mm-hmm. yet until that moment. And even still, she still wants to help them. She yep. wants to help Nori. Uh, not get left behind. Mm. But now we realize it's because her family died and got left behind. Yeah. Uh, The other part where they're talking about uh, people getting left behind was the one who they called an idiot. Idiot. (laughs) Bees. We all loved him. He sure was an idiot. (laughs) One of the the big questions from episode two to three was everybody speculating on who the stranger was. Is the stranger Sauron? I think it's pretty clear in episode three, when we get to the Harfoots, it's pretty clear he's not evil. Honestly, I was I I was sold that he was Sauron, completely, and I didn't I wasn't like forthright with that in the last episode when we were talking, but I I really was I was sold that it was, he was Sauron, and then this episode did pretty pretty well just take me away from that that yeah, theory. He was in this episode he's confused and gentle mm-hmm. um and I, I love when poppy was even kind of chastising um nori about it and she was like he sometimes murders flyer fireflies <laughs> and she says that, that was, was an accident, accident. <laughs> so while the harfoots are having their little ceremony the stranger goes through eleanor's bag nori's bag and finds what she pulled out and then he goes to the fire to read it it's very reminiscent of to me of Gandalf when he is trying to study and read and mm. and look through things in the in the movies uh, in the Lord of the Rings, the way he moves his hair uh, is very reminiscent of how I think they want us to think a wizard would be like. Mm-hmm. And so I do now think he is a wizard. I just don't know who. I tend to think not Gandalf because who would want to replace Ian McKellen? Yeah. Right, so I'm thinking about it from like a like a like a the standpoint of putting it all together, right? The 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 show writers, Mm -hmm. I don't think they'd want it to be Gandalf. I think they would want us to feel the same emotions Gandalf makes us feel. Yeah. So I've heard a theory, and I want to go with that theory um, for now that maybe there were two meteors, and we only saw one, or we saw both, but just didn't realize it was two different meteors. and that the blue wizards, both blue wizards are in Middle-earth now. And so 
maybe he's one of the blue wizards. So he ends up causing a ruckus and he turns around and says, Nori. And she knows she's in so much trouble. Nori has been discovered as the stranger's keeper. And then um, she says we, she protects Poppy from being discovered as well. And then Nori delivers a great line on her toes. She says, without friends, what are we surviving for? For people that give off the appearance of sticking with each other to the end, a part of your community guidelines is that you're you're pretty quick to kick somebody out. Seems seems to be uh, something missing there. For me, it is that we have to see a progression of them growing as people. Like they're they eventually settle in the Shire and live in hobbit holes and mind their own business. Um, and. For me, it's a progression. So they, they, they start here, they end here. And we, we need to see that arc in them. I also love when they tell him to be at the back. Uh, Nori's dad's like, at the back? And they're walking away. And you can hear it. He's like, do you mean the back back or do you mean the middle back? <laughs> like, what's the middle back? That's a very, like, Hobbit-esque uh, banter. Yeah. yeah. So I resonate with the Hobbits. I feel... I feel like a hobbit. Is there a certain group of people that, that you resonate with the most? Oh, the hobbits. Absolutely. They're the, they're the ones that bring you into the story. They're the, they're the regular guys. Somebody crafted a whole uh, sort of idea of different kinds of fantasy. And there's portal fantasy and immersion fantasy and, um, and the Lord of the Rings. Um, I think she said, but please don't quote me, um, was an immersion fantasy uh, because you just go right into that world. There's no transition like the wardrobe, like with C.S. Lewis, in which you go from one to another. You're just in it. And that's true, but it's only partially true because the hobbits go into the world of Middle-earth and they discover it because the Shire is a very small little enclave and they don't even have maps beyond the borders. So they are as ignorant as the reader is in many respects. Uh, and in that respect, it is a portal fantasy because the hobbits cross under the hedge. They go into the underworld. And then they come up again and they're in the old forest and it's all new to them. And they're talking trees and, um, and elves and trolls and trolls and all of that. Um, so I think the hobbits are our, our guides into Tolkien's world. And it's because we can identify with them. They like to eat. I love to eat. So I really identify with that. Um, they like simple things. They like bread and cheese and beer and mushrooms. Um, they take baths, which means they get dirty. Nobody else in the Lord of the Rings ever, as I can recall, takes a bath. But it's such a, such a down-home thing to do. So yeah, it's the hobbits for me. And it was for Tolkien. He said they're the ones who brought it down to earth. So the Harfoots are migrating. And Nori's dad cannot do it. The stranger appears and starts moving their cart for them. And they form a pact together that they're going to let him do that. That's how they're going to keep up. Allow the stranger to push the cart for them from the back. So now it's a good thing they were in the back. Yeah. Because yeah. they weren't going to... It's clear they weren't going to make it. Yep. They were going to get passed up and left behind. But the stranger followed them. And I love how Nori's uh, sibling says, can we keep him? Yeah. So Adar looks like a, a, a humanoid to me. And then we see his hand and it looks like Sauron's hand. It does, hand. yeah. And at the beginning, remember, they said... Why does he have an elf name? 
Mm-hmm. Right? And all we get to see is this blurry, this blurry man. And I can see elf ear a little yeah, bit. Yeah, you can kind of see it. I wonder. We're obviously going to get more next week on who he is. Um, I mean, is that Sauron? Are we just going to be given it? This is Sauron. So for me, the movies got me into Tolkien, right? Can you see like that? Maybe this will do that for, for a new generation of Tolkien lovers. It probably will. I don't know. Um, There's a lot of talk about the fact that the movies, the Jackson movies, are really what got people interested in Tolkien. But people have always been interested. Ever since the books came out, um, there's never been any lack of readers or lack of reasons to publish a new edition. So it's not like the book was dying on the shelves and the movies revived it. Um, I think people who like this sort of thing will find their way to Tolkien with or without the movies. I also appreciate that you're willing to come on here and, and give your opinion. That's going to be different than most people that are going to be listening to our podcast. And uh, I trust that our, our listeners will appreciate uh, your opinion um, because I, I think there's a place for disagreement. I think there's a place for uh, gatekeeping Tolkien basically, right. Uh, trying to keep it pure to what, to what he wrote. I'm just talking about myself. I can't say anything for anybody else. People are free to watch um, the Amazon series and free to enjoy it. My gosh, Uh, I'm not crusading. I'm just telling you what my take is. You don't have a vendetta against Amazon or or, or Bezos. (laughs) No, I do not. I'm not going to watch it, but I wouldn't get much pleasure out of it. I want to say a special thank you to Dr. Verlin Flieger for joining us today. We are truly honored to have heard from you on all things Tolkien. Wherever you're watching, please remember to like and subscribe and share it with others. If you have any comments or questions you would like us to answer, please email us at acrossthesunderingseas at gmail.com. Thanks again for joining us on Across the Sundering Seas. Do you know the comings and the goings of entering and exiting Valinor by chance? It depends on what time it is. Uh, It depends on whether the earth has been separated from Valinor and bent into a circle. Um, If that is the case, then the straight road to Valinor would sort of come off the the high point of a globe and continue into the West. And very few people can make that journey. At the end of the Lord of the Rings, when they're all at the Grey Havens and they're saying goodbye to Frodo and they watch him sail down the Firth, the ship does not disappear over the horizon as it would in our world. It gets smaller and smaller and smaller, but it it doesn't go over the edge because it's on the straight road. But that is a road accessible to very few. So I don't know how somebody would leave Valinor to come to Middle-earth except in the Second Age. And how does that happen in the Second Age? That's before the Earth is bent. Where does most of the information we know about the Second Age come from? The appendices uh, to the Lord of the Rings. Tolkien did write a good deal about that. And uh, there is some from Christopher Tolkien's History of Middle Earth, which is 12 volumes. Uh, so you can you can gather together a fair amount of information about 
things that went on in, in the Second Age. Tolkien left the Second Age to the appendix. Uh, he did not fill it in. And for me, it's the blanks that make it, um, that make it interesting. Now for the Amazon people, that's exactly what they wanna fill in. Uh, and I think that, um, I think that sometimes to leave things unfilled in gives more room for imagination than to have, you know, everything all colored in nicely, like in, in a children's coloring book. Is there, are there, is there anything like, like in the Tolkien world that would, that you could think of right now that would be fun to talk about or um, that, that you could say? Oh, everything, tons of things. Um, the languages, the peoples, the power of his invention, the way that he changed the book while he was writing it so that, for example, Treebeard started out as a giant and a bad guy. Um, and that Tolkien worked with the stuff and, and let it grow and let it become what it was and was willing to change and watch his own world sort of grow under his hands. This is a terrible metaphor and I'm not gonna push it very far, but he, the plant was growing. He was just gonna feed and water it. I had a question that Gabriel had actually wanted me to ask you. I'd love to hear her talk about Owen Barfield's influence on Tolkien as she discusses it in your book, Splintered Light. Um, and But then he questions, it was such a long time ago. I wonder if she could still speak to that. Well, um, yes, a little bit. Um, I don't know that I can say much more than I said in the book, but what I said there was that Tolkien um, knew Owen Barfield, who is a sort of philosopher of language. I mean, his profession was as a, as a lawyer. He was a solicitor, but his great love and the books that he wrote were about language and the history of language and the connection between language and the world and our understanding of the world uh, for which he wrote language is kind of the interface. And Tolkien said, and was quoted as saying at one point to C.S. Lewis, after you've read Barfield on language, there are all sorts of things you can't say again. And I got kind of interested in what those things might be. Uh, and that led me to Tolkien's own languages uh, and to his understanding of of the importance of, of words and of the, the great power of words. Um, and I think that's pretty much what I wrote about in, in Splintered Light. Tolkien said at one point, after The Lord of the Rings first came out, that he had actually started with invented languages his elven languages. Well, nobody believed him that you could create such a, such a vast and intricate world by inventing a language like Pig Latin. That didn't seem to compute, but he was absolutely right. He had started with languages and then he realized that you can't invent a language without inventing the people who speak it. And you can't know the people who speak it unless you know what kind of world they live in and use that language to discover and to describe. And so the whole thing becomes a kind of round robin in which language leads to people, leads to world, leads to language, leads to people, and you just go on and on. 
And that's what happened to Tolkien. Uh, he invented, well, I think actually 12 separate languages, but the two main ones, his Elvish languages were Quenya and Sindarin. Quenya he called Elven Latin. He meant it to be a kind of antique language of lore. And then Sindarin was the language of every day. Um, but the world grew out of, out of those words. I saw something on the internet that said Tolkien spent years and years and years inventing a language and then wrote a story. And C.S. Lewis created a story that started with a lamppost and said, forget about how it got here. We'll figure it out later. <laughs> that's, that's pretty much true. And it's pretty much typical of both men.